You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. In this episode of First Look, Washington Post opinions editor-at-large, Michael Duffy, sits down with Washington Post correspondents and columnists to discuss the Kaseya ransomware attack, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, and what awaits Congress after recess. Let's listen. I'm Michael Duffy, opinions editor-at-large at the Post. Jonathan Capert has the week off. Our first guest today is Joseph Marks. He's the anchor of the Cybersecurity 202 newsletter at the Post. Good morning, Joe. Morning, Michael. Thanks for joining us. Let's talk about the Kaseya ransomware attack, which paralyzed hundreds of companies over the 4th of July weekend. You described this attack as a revolution, quote, uh, in sophistication for ransomware hackers. Um, what do you mean by that? Tell us about why this one is different. Well, most of the time when you have attacks like this, they get in through really the lowest hanging fruit. Um, everyone remembers the Colonial Pipeline attack from God, just a month or so ago. And in that case, uh, executives there were sharing a password to get into a particular system. That password didn't have two-factor authentication. I mean, that's the kind of thing people have on their iPhones now. Uh, pretty easy for the hackers to get in. In this case, uh, the hackers used what's called a zero day. That essentially means it's a bug in a computer system that has never been publicly disclosed before. It's never known to have been used to hack into anything before. This is the kind of thing that, you know, big nation state intelligence agencies, you know, the NSA and the Kremlin use to steal each other's secrets. It's not something we've ever seen at this level before used to launch a ransomware attack against companies. So it's sort of like amateurs using professional tactics? Well, you can hardly call them amateurs anymore. I mean, some of these ransomware gangs, because they've taken in so much money from so many different places because people pay these ransoms, they have the budgets, the, the hacking budgets of a lot of nation states at this point, you know, not the U.S. level, not the Russia or China level, but like Pakistan, like Brazil. So, I mean, they're increasingly, you know, not just professional, but, you know, on the nation state level. So who's behind it and what does the evidence suggest? about who's behind it. So what the cybersecurity firms say is that the group behind it is a group called R Evil, Revil, no one quite knows how to pronounce it. But the, and that is a group that is based in Russia, run by at least Russian speakers, if not Russian citizens. The the big question it seems that the Biden administration is working on right now is who uh, paid for the attack? Because Revil, R Evil is a ransomware as a service company. And so was DarkSide, the group that hit Colonial. So that's essentially, they've got the tools. Uh, they sometimes have the exploits to get into particular companies. Some group comes to them and says, hey, I, I wanna use this against these guys for a big payday. And they supply you with the tools for it. It seems that the thing that the Biden administration is waiting on figuring out right now is, well, was the group who paid for it Russian as well? And if so, can we use that to push back against Putin somewhat more than we have so far? You know, or was it someone else? And, and to what extent does that actually matter? So who paid for it as a test for the administration as opposed to some other measure? Is, is that the, the current um, yardstick the White House uses to decide how to respond or are there other factors? I don't think they have a yardstick yet. I think they're trying to figure out what their yardstick is. Um, the one yardstick is how to the extent to which the Russian state is responsible for this. It's widely understood that these groups are criminals. They're not 
operating out of the Kremlin, but they operate with, at the very least, the tacit approval and perhaps the active approval of the Kremlin that has not done anything to clamp down on them. Uh, the other issue is that when Biden uh, confronted Putin about this in Geneva uh, last month, the focus at that point was on critical infrastructure. These you know, 16 large sectors that the government has determined, if there's a real attack in these sectors, that affects economic and national security. We need to do something about that. These are post 9-11 things that DHS came up with. Uh, colonial pipeline, that's definitely critical infrastructure. If there is a gas shortage across the United States, that's a really big problem. Uh, JBS, the meatpacking plant, that's another one. It's agriculture. You know, if we had a real meat shortage, that would cause some panic in this country. But the thing about Kasei is it was really big. It affected up, up to 1,500 companies. Uh, but as far as we know, there wasn't this direct link to great American livelihood. So I think it's probably another thing that the White House is considering now. So if critical infrastructure was not affected, uh, the scope of this could change how the administration had been thinking about what sort of measured response it, it takes. Uh, any indication yet about what that might look like? And would we as citizens know about it in real time, days or weeks later, or is this something they won't talk about, do you think? Um, there are a number of different options on the table, and the question is, how much stomach does the administration have for them? This is a confrontation between the U.S. and Russia that's been growing for some time. Um, the things we have done so far, which include indicting Russian cyber criminals, uh, indicting Kremlin-based hackers, and uh, imposing sanctions on Russia, really haven't done a whole lot. Um, there are much more uh, severe and public things that we could do. Uh, Dmitry Elperovich, uh, former CTO of CrowdStrike, now at uh, Silverado Policy Accelerator, uh, a thinker and uh, expert in this field, wrote a post-op ed uh, just last week, I believe, saying, hey, it's time to get serious. We need to, if, if Putin doesn't crack down on these companies, we need to impose very severe sanctions on the oil and gas sector. That would be you know, a bridge we have not crossed yet. That could happen. We could punch back in cyberspace Two, the problem with that is uh, there are a lot of second and third order consequences when you do that. Um, you know, certainly you could try to take out the the ransomware gangs themselves. That's 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 one approach, but that would be complicated, and you'd have to do it again and again over time. There are more severe things you could do. You could um, steal and release secrets about Putin and about his inner circle. You could do things that show we're very serious about this mm -hmm. that make Putin himself uncomfortable. The problem is uh, cyberspace is about as asymmetric of a battlefield as you have. So once you started to do that, you know, A, you, you've made it easier for Russia to do the same thing back to us again, and they're pretty good at this. Um, yeah. And also, uh, we are, because U.S. companies are just much more dependent on the Internet than Russian companies, if we get into a tit-for-tat exchange with them, we could be far more vulnerable. One quick last question. As you uh, look at this threat landscape, which seems to be, if not escalating, certainly getting more complicated, what uh, are U.S. officials worried about that may come next? Do we know yet? A lot of things are on the table. I mean, one would be if you can't get Putin to crack down on these criminal ransomware gangs, you really can't get him to do anything. Because on the list of things that should matter to Putin, this is not the top of the list. There are a lot of intelligence hacking operations that matter a lot more to the Kremlin than this. Um, so if you can't do this, then our chances of managing anything diplomatically or through a pressure campaign 
are pretty limited. Um, and then one of the big things, we have the 2022 midterms coming up. There could be a lot of chaos connected with those. And then the final thing that people have always worried about that we haven't seen quite as much of yet is destructive attacks, right? Um, the Russians probably have gotten a foothold in a lot of this critical infrastructure, energy firms, dams, things like that. If rather than stealing information, locking things up, they decided to blow things up in the computer equivalent of that, that could be a real problem. If dams all of a sudden stop working, uh, if energy plants are exploding, that's real, um, you know, crossing the line into military conflict level. Joe, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts. Um, we're out of time. Uh, appreciate you taking uh, uh, time with us this morning and good luck. Thanks so much. Now I want to bring in Washington Post contributing columnist Donna Edwards and editorial writer and columnist Chuck Lane. Welcome to you both. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Michael. So, uh, Donna, how aggressive uh, has the president, or should the president be uh, towards Putin in light of what we just heard from Joe? Do you uh, think that it's time for him to make good on his promises coming out of Geneva, or does it sound yet, so far, this isn't the moment? Well, I mean, I think we're getting to that moment. I mean, these cyber um, attacks are really, even if it doesn't affect critical infrastructure, it's costing uh, millions of dollars. I was reading about the story in uh, of Leonardtown, Maryland, that was caught up in uh, this ransomware attack. And, you know, it's a small town, but it shuts down a town. It's a town that's near Patuxent Air Base um, that, you know, impacts a lot, of, a lot of citizens. And so that may not be critical infrastructure, but I think the president has to look really aggressively about ways to um, both hold these uh, these criminals accountable, and you know clearly that's very limited. Um, but going after their sources of money and in some limited ways that we may not know about, um, going after these um, these attacks and tracing them, if if need be, making sure that we trace them to the Russian government or uh, to government um, allied you know companies or something, but. Um, this is a really difficult difficult one, but increase. I mean, the cyber attacks have actually increased um, so substantially just over the last couple of years, and so we haven't seen an end to this. We've just seen an escalation. Chuck, do you agree? How do you grade his uh, Biden's response so far? I, I do agree with Donna uh, that this is uh, serious business and that it is escalating. And I think the president deserves some credit for uh, laying down a marker to Vladimir Putin, but then obviously uh, it's being tested, uh, probably mm -hmm. deliberately. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think uh, Putin's objective would be uh, to show that Joe Biden is a weak president, that he can't protect the American people from an external threat. And that would be absolutely devastating to I mean, in addition to all the other devastation, it would be devastating to this presidency. It's a reminder that very often people get elected president to do one thing, and then when they become president, a whole new challenge is presented to them that they really didn't campaign on, but that their presidency will, in some respect, uh, be judged by. Donna, yesterday, President Biden announced that the U.S.'s 20-year-long military commitment in Afghanistan will end by the end of, I think it's August. Uh, but the Taliban has made already some gains in the region, and the top U.S. commander there is concerned about uh, 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 further deterioration of stability in the country. 
Uh, Biden did something that the last three presidents couldn't do, which was actually end U.S. presence there. Uh, is that the right move at the right time, in your view? Well, what I would say is it's about time. Um, you know, this 20-plus year um, engagement that we've had in Afghanistan after accomplishing what was an initial mission, it's been unclear over the last, you know, decade and a half of what the mission is in Afghanistan. And I'm conflicted about this, though. I mean, I think the, you know, the plight and the status of uh, women, Afghan women and girls um, under the Taliban is going to be a very, you know, a, a huge step back um, from them. But the United States cannot solve the civil war and put the Afghans onto a path to their own, own governance. They have to do that themselves. And it doesn't mean pulling everything out of Afghanistan, the military mission, but the diplomatic mission will continue. The aid mission uh, will continue. But uh, I think it's about time. Chuck, do you agree? Is that was the twenty-year-long uh, mission no longer uh, enjoying public support, or was Biden just taking taking steps that no other president could manage to pull off here? Well, I'm I'm struck by how wide the consensus is in the United States to accept the withdrawal from Afghanistan. I think nobody feels great about it. Uh, there's 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 no good conclusion to this. There's no victory parade, even though, as Donna points out, our initial objective was achieved. The larger ones clearly were not. Uh, and I think the president, in a political sense, enjoys great protection here because he's carrying out Donald Trump's policy. Uh, president Trump uh, wanted to get out of Afghanistan as well. And uh, Biden, that's one of the few things they agreed about. I would say this, though, that if this process becomes extremely ugly extremely quickly. And we have images in the American and international media of, of terrible violence in Kabul, of people rushing to embassies to escape and so on, then the issue could change. And, you know, again, the pressure could be on President Biden to re-enter Afghanistan, if only to protect from that terrible disaster. As Donna points out, a whole generation has grown up in Kabul mm -hmm. of young people enjoying the freedom and particularly the gender equality that went on under the protection of the international forces there. And their fate is very, very grim right now. Let's bring the focus home a bit. Congress is currently in recess, but there's a lot on the docket when they return, most notably infrastructure, a bipartisan group of senators uh, has uh, come close to an agreement on at least a first package of, uh, of spending. Uh, Donna, after your time in Congress, uh, do you think the Democrats can get it over the finish line before the end of summer? Well, I think they can, but it's going to require an awful lot of work to make sure that they get that reconciliation uh, package together, because without the budget reconciliation that gathers together um, spending that would deal with issues like climate change and the human infrastructure that's so important to moving the economy. Um, that, if that doesn't move, I don't see how you get all the Democrats on board uh, for the infrastructure package. So those things, I think, you know, have to move um, in tandem, whether one comes right before the okay, other or sure. not. That's just a question of timing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Chuck, the, both in both houses, the Democrats have uh, a majority, almost in name only, a vote or two in one house. Well, one vote in, in, in the Senate, less than 10 in the House. Um, this narrows their leverage when it comes to negotiations. Uh, how do you see the prospects for infrastructure before the summer ends? Well, I'm going to uh, sound uh, a little, uh, I don't know from whose perspective, a little unduly optimistic or whatever, but I think when you really analyze it, the chances are probably better than even that they will, the Democrats will come to accept this 1.2 trillion infrastructure or something very much like it, simply because when they really think about it, they all have to hang together or in the 2022 midterms, they're gonna all hang separately. Their chances of winning the midterms are not great to begin with. But to go to that election completely empty-handed, uh, I think would be a political malpractice. And I'm sure the leadership in both houses understands that. Donna's absolutely right. Again, the, the, the political jujitsu that's gonna have to be done to make that happen is not easy. But I think at the end of the day, the, the survival instinct will, will enable them to support, uh, support some legislation. And in the other big story on the Hill at the moment, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy has now said that he will handpick some Republicans to join the, uh, com the commission that was started by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to look at the events surrounding January 6th. That was a step the Speaker took, as you guys know, after a more formal uh, commission, which would involve people not in Congress, uh, failed in the Senate. Um, it's tough for McCarthy, though, because he has to pick people uh, uh, fairly soon, and the, the, the probe is going to look at whether not only Donald Trump's role, not only what Donald Trump's role was, uh, but also perhaps those of other GOP House members. Um, uh, that's a tough challenge. Uh, how do you think McCarthy will uh, proceed? Chuck? I think, uh, I think he's going to try to do... Uh as little as possible to break up his own uh, group there in the House, and that's going to be hard. I guess what he'll probably try to do is find some of the more moderate members who either voted for impeachment or voted for some of these other uh, anti-Trump, uh, you know, to authorize this commission and so forth, maybe put one or two of them on there. Um, but, you know, the problem for the Republicans is their base, the people they depend on, to get elected doesn't care about either doesn't care about this issue or thinks it was all Antifa's fault or something like that. I mean, the the other risk is that they're going to find an honest investigation would find some links, perhaps, between sitting members of Congress and this mob. And uh, that would be most uh, untoward. Kevin McCarthy is desperately trying to run out the clock on this issue between now and next fall. Uh, at which point he expects the sort of inertia and momentum to carry him into the speakership, and then he can put the whole thing uh, on ice for good, I would think. All right. Um, you saw that Nancy Pelosi put Liz Cheney, the, uh, the representative at large from Wyoming, uh, on the, uh, her commission. Is that a significant step, and what does that portend as far as you can see? Well, I think the appointment of Liz Cheney was um, a class chess move, um, checkmate for uh, for Nancy Pelosi, because in this way, of course, this um, commission, this um, independent, this uh, commission committee 
can't be accused of being um, totally partisan. There is a, a Republican on the committee. But at the same time, I think Kevin McCarthy is in a real bind here because uh, the people who are most vying to be on the committee are the firebrands who, who are the most, the biggest defenders of the former president. And um, he's going to have to have some mix of them on this uh, committee or his uh, caucus, I don't think, will sustain it. Yeah, yeah. Donna, if the commission uh, actually gets itself together and they and they start hearing witnesses, should uh, should they subpoena Donald Trump to testify about what happened that day? And should Democrats fight for that? Well, I'm not really sure yet that that's, that is necessary. I think that there's going to be enough subpoena of records and documentation and other people and a lot of video um, uh, analysis that will support uh, the fact finding. And if it comes to, uh, to Donald Trump, I think that could actually just create uh, chaos. And I suspect that um, Democrats are not going to treat this like the Benghazi uh, commission. They are going to be serious about it. They're going to have their heads down and they're going to be focused on getting to the truth and, and the fact finding. And, you know, the subpoenas will fall where they will and probably to some members of Congress, but I really doubt that it will be Donald Trump. You know, Chuck, Donna uh, uh, spoke shrewdly there about the risks for Republicans in this. Are there any risks for Democrats in um, trying to uh, pull off this commission's report before the 2022 elections? Any risks that you can see? Not, not really, uh, except possibly just using up bandwidth and members' time on something that, you know, maybe later they would prefer to have the time for. But I honestly think that this is all upside for the Democrats in the following sense. Their base really cares about it. Um, and in, in some sense, I think would punish them if they did not pursue this. And on the other hand, you know, as you look ahead to 2022, the Democrats are going to need everybody in the base for that election. So I think politically, it's a no brainer. But, you know, this is one of those instances where the politics of the situation and the good policy also match up. I mean, we need the truth about these events. This was a horrible and unique, terrible moment in American history. It's extremely disappointing, I think, that more Republicans can't see that and that this has become so partisan. Uh, for, Donna, former President Donald Trump uh, filed lawsuits this week against Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg and Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey, YouTube and Google CEO Sundar Pichai after being removed from social media platforms. Um, what's Trump up to here, Donna? What, what do you think the game is? I think the former president is up to creating enough uh, noise out there so that his base continues to pay attention so that he can raise uh, money and so he can continue to point to what he describes as a fraudulent um, uh, election. And that gives him, you know, just kind of more energy and a bigger voice to do it, given that he's not on the platforms. Uh, someone wrote this week, Chuck, that uh, 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 for all his efforts to reestablish himself on Twitter and Facebook, um, the suit this week uh, shows that Trump's preferred platform has actually always been the lawsuit. Uh, and so this is a return to his most familiar ground. 
does that uh, sound to you like uh, it's right, or does he have some other uh, a reason to file the suit now, since most legal analysts have declared it to be specious? You know, I'm, I may surprise you guys by saying I think this ought to be taken a little more seriously than it seems that some people are. Not in a legal sense, because I agree that the legal basis of his suit is kind of weak. But in a symbolic sense, it's a little stronger than that. I mean, even Bernie Sanders is on record saying that it's a little awkward for these big companies to have the power to silence someone who, as objectionable as he may be, is the former president of the United States with a very large following in this country. And freedom of speech and freedom of expression are, are really core values in the United States, even for repugnant views. And this is an extremely controversial issue about which the margin, you know, the margins of what should be permitted and what should not are very much open to debate. And I think in that sense, it's a shrewd position for Trump to adopt, to portray himself as the victim of these giant Silicon Valley corporations, which a lot of people don't like for other reasons. And, um, you know, I think it would be a mistake to dismiss the symbolic potency of what he's doing. You guys are great. So thoughtful, thought-provoking on all these things. Thank you so much for joining us. We're out of time. I want to thank both Donna and Chuck, as well as Joseph Marks. I'm Michael Duffy. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.